You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Les aseguro que algunos de los que aquí presentes no sufrirán la muerte sin antes haber visto el reino de Dios llegar con poder. La transfiguración. Seis días después, Jesús tomó consigo a Pedro, a Jacobo y a Juan y los llevó a una montaña alta, donde estaban solos. Ahí se transfiguró en presencia de ellos. Su ropa se volvió de un blanco resplandeciente como nadie en el mundo podría blanquearla, y se le aparecieron Elías y Moisés, los cuales conversaban con Jesús. Tomando la palabra, Pedro le dijo a Jesús, Rabbi, qué bien que estemos aquí. Podemos levantar tres albergues, uno para ti, otro para Moisés y otro para Elías. No sabía qué decir, porque todos estaban asustados. Entonces apareció una nube que los envolvió, de la cual salió una voz que dijo, Este es mi hijo amado, escúchenlo. De repente, cuando miraron a su alrededor, ya no vieron a nadie más que a Jesús. Mientras bajaban de la montaña, Jesús les ordenó que no contaran a nadie lo que habían visto hasta que el Hijo del Hombre se levantara de entre los muertos. Guardaron el secreto, pero discutían entre ellos qué, significa, qué significaría esto de levantarse entre los muertos. ¿Por qué, dices los, perdón, ¿Por qué dicen los maestros de la ley que Elías tiene que venir primero? Le preguntaron, «Sin duda, Elías ha de venir primero para restaurar todas las cosas», respondió Jesús. «Pero entonces, ¿cómo es que está escrito que el Hijo del Hombre tiene que sufrir mucho y ser rechazado?» Es palabra de Dios. You're supposed to say, Gloria a ti, Señor Jesús. Um, Boring old English, Mark 9, verses 1 through 12. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And he asked them, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer all things, suffer many things, and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series on uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're doing Mark backwards. And um, the reason we're doing that uh, is because um, it helps you to see the the story of Jesus afresh, I think, to look at it in reverse order. Um, I have been talking about thinking about uh, a movie of the life of Jesus and uh, perhaps a director deciding to do that backwards. just because that way, again, you, uh, you see things you don't normally see. Actually, I think you pay more attention to the structure of the book. And you're starting to, I, I have been thinking about how did Mark arrange this? Because he has, he has hundreds of different stories he could tell. He knows so many more things than he's written down. Why did he arrange uh, it in this particular way? Um, in this order, uh, with these stories. We've looked at the, the resurrection. Uh, we've looked at um, the cross. So the first scene in the movie would be the resurrection. Then you would see the cross, him hanging on the tree, being yelled at, verbally abused. And then, then the next scene would be the, the supper, where it's kind of like you're seeing what's about to happen. Um, and then the second coming, which is a, in a way, it's like an interruption in the story of the final, the way that things will finally be. So you kind of go back to before the beginning. Um, and then last week we looked at uh, the upside down kingdom and the way that I would think there would have to be a scene that shows you the way that Christ conceives of, of his kingdom ethically and morally, and how humility trumps arrogance, and how uh, service, giving yourselves up for other people, is more important than being served and being exalted by other people. So that was what I called the, uh, the upside-down kingdom, instead of a pyramid, a funnel, and the idea was, we, our job is to, greatness is plunging down the funnel, jumping into this giant funnel and going downward to meet Christ, who's at the bottom of the funnel. And now we have this transfiguration. And this tends to be, in the, in the different Gospels, the transfiguration is the midpoint. So it's a really important hinge in the Gospels, uh, the transfiguration. And it is bracketed by um, these two announcements of doom. And we looked at one last week, and we're going to look at one the next week. But basically what you have is Jesus saying in Mark 8.31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Okay, that's going to come up next week. Mark 8.31, really important, really, really important verse. That's the first time he predicts his death. And then you have this transfiguration where he just kind of lights up like lightning. It's like a lightning storm of glory. And you see the true nature of who Jesus is. So you have a prediction of his destruction You have a transfiguration. They literally go up a mountain and then they're coming back down the mountain and guess what he does? He says again, this is in verse 12, the son of man must suffer many things 
and be treated with contempt. So the, the heart of, at the heart of Mark's vision for Christ is this, uh, this person who is, who is exalted, but who is going to be degraded, who is, who is deciding to the exalted one from heaven, the transfigured one, is going to be degraded. He is going to suffer many things. So you have this combination of kind of a steep exaltation and then a deep degradation. And you see that in Philippians 2. Though he was in the very form of God, Paul writes, uh, he did not consider equality with God something he had to grab a hold of, but, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of a human And then he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. So that's the basic shape of the gospel. The good news is, uh, though he was in the very form of God, he became a human. And then it says God therefore highly exalted him. So the the way up is the way down. We go down to be exalted. So first the exaltation and then the degradation. First of all, again, Jesus just announced this kind of insane battle plan to defeat the empire. The empire being uh, Satan, all of his angels, uh, the principalities of powers, the cosmic uh, rulers in dark places, spiritual forces of evil, of this present darkness. That's the empire. And the way all of our nations and all of our political leaders join in to these dark powers, the invisible dark powers, that's the empire. And Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, I am going to defeat that empire and I'm going to do it by dying and by treated with contempt. And when we think about a strategy for impacting the world and how do you make a difference in the world and like what do you go out there and do, do we ever think of the, the battle plan of Christ? You know, do you ever think about the battle plan of, well, let's go out there and die. Let's go out there and suffer. Let's go out there and, uh, and serve people and get lower and lift people up. Uh, that's the way he chose to do it. They are so shocked and appalled by this because they thought he was going to become this great conqueror, this military leader who would drive out the Romans, the Messiah, the son of David, who would do what David did, which is defeat all these pagan empires. And they hear this and they are so shocked and appalled that Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine having the wherewithal to tell Jesus uh, to take him aside and rebuke him and say, you are wrong. This is wrong. You're going the wrong way. You've lost your mind, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. So after Jesus is rebuked by Peter, um, he takes Peter, James, and John, who are the three people that he trusts the most, and he's going to show these three something that he's only going to show them, and it's very, very important. And he takes them up this, uh, this mountain. So he goes about six days north. He's in Caesarea Philippi when he makes the announcement that he's going to die. Then he goes north to this gigantic mountain that's still there, believe it or not. The mountain's still there. Uh, It says in verse 2, he led them up a high mountain by themselves. That's the three. Now this mountain, you can can Google it right now if you want to, Mount Hermon, H-E-R-M-O-N. It is a snow-capped mountain. It is, I don't usually think of uh, the promised land or Israel or Palestine as having large mountains. This mountain is 9,000 feet high. So it's very high. Mount Mitchell is the highest mountain on the east coast. It's like under 7,000. So we're talking about a 9,000 foot mountain. It just comes right out of the ground. So it's, it's not even really in a mountain range. It just kind of comes right out of the ground. A 9,000 foot snow-capped mountain. And I kind of imagine them leaving at like 5 a.m., going up the mountain, 
transfiguration, and then maybe coming back down like at 11 p.m. It's a, it's a long hike. It's a long, long day's hike into the snow. Um, and you, you just got to ask the question, why did he do it? Why did he take him up there? You know, what's going on? And I think the answer is that he's got to show them that his kingdom is going to come with power. He says that in verse one, my kingdom will come with power. And if you're wondering about that phrase, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see it. I think he's referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost there. I don't think he's referring to um, his second coming because in fact, they didn't see it. Uh, We haven't even seen it. He hasn't come back. So when he says about the kingdom coming with power, he's probably talking about Pentecost and maybe even the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But whatever the case, he said in verse one, my kingdom will come with power and my suffering will bring the victory. So he's, he's reminding them, even though I said I was going to suffer, I'm not saying there's less power. My kingdom's still going to come with power. And here's the power. And then he goes to the mountain and he just, he's glowing. Like he's literally shining with radiance, with white light. And the idea here is it's got to come from a higher authority, literally a cloud, a voice speaking out of a cloud has got to be the one that convinced them, the three main leaders of the disciples, that when he's gone, that truly this is how he wins the victory. And this is how they're going to win the victory, is through doing what he did, which is suffering, being treated with contempt. Blessed are those when people persecute you and revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward. That's what Jesus says. That's how we're supposed to live. Being persecuted. Uh, He was transfigured. That's the key word in this whole passage, verse 2. The word metamorphosis comes from this Greek word. He was metamorphosized. Um, This doesn't mean he changed into something he was not. So have you ever seen the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum or, um, you know, that kind of idea, something changing um, from one substance into another? Even the idea of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly is not quite right here. He's not like turning into something... He actually is simply showing them something that he always was and always will be. And, um, you know, he could have walked around his whole life. Can you imagine if he had walked around the earth his entire life like this, in this state, transfigured? I don't think it would have worked. That wouldn't have worked because that would have undone the very idea of him coming to die and suffer. So he he wasn't always going to walk around in this state of glory, but he shows them. I just want you to know, even though I just said I'm suffering, I'm going to tell you again I'm suffering. I am glorious. I am exalted. He was transfigured. I think about when Gandalf becomes really big. He gets really big on Bilbo because Bilbo Baggins doesn't want to give Gandalf the ring back. And so uh, Gandalf first like, tries to persuade him for a little bit. Now Gandalf's kind of like this hobbled old wizard. He's got this gray beard. He looks like he's um, really old and he can't walk that well. He's got a cane. But then when Bilbo won't give him the ring, suddenly he just becomes huge. And he begins to take on this new voice, and he's like, you need to give me that ring right now. Do not trifle with me. And I think of Jesus becoming like that. He suddenly just gets really big on them and says, I am telling you, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of Man. I am the exalted one. The glory was always there, but now it's shining through like lightning. Verse 3 says... And I find this detail very interesting. His clothes became radiant. His clothes. So look, if I was transfigured right now, this, this shirt and these pants and this belt would start shining. Not just my skin, but the clothes became radiant. Radiant means they radiate light. So it wasn't just that they became white. It's more like if I was like the sun and it was radiating. 
my clothes radiating. They became intensely white, so white that you could pour gallons of bleach on a shirt and it wouldn't get that white. That's how white it got. It was just radiating. And obviously he's still a normal human being because he's got clothes on. So he's not become a non-human. He is still a human. He's still wearing clothes, but it's like his clothes are on fire. It's kind of like the burning bush where the bush was on fire, but it didn't burn. The glory was there. The glory is all over him. It says in Revelation 1.6 that when John saw him later after he had died. So the book of Revelation is written uh, many years after this event. It's written by John, who was there on that mountain. Now John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And he sees this vision of Jesus. And it says that the face of Jesus, Revelation 1.16, shone like the sun at full strength. It's like a tropical noonday sun. Not like a North Carolina sun, like a, like a sun in Hawaii, like a sun uh, in Florida, like a really bright sun. His face shone like the sun at full strength. And John sees his best friend there on the Isle of Patmos, and it says he falls to his knees. He can't even stand the glory of it. And so I think what John saw on the Isle of Patmos, Peter, James, and John are now seeing on the mountain, Mount Hermon. It says in verse 7 that it was more than just shining. Uh, It says a cloud overshadowed them. And I would say the cloud in verse 7 is even more important than the white radiant light. The cloud is more important. Of the two, like angels, if you look at angels like Gabriel, Michael, whenever they meet angels, the angels of the tomb, the angels are also shining. So an angel can shine. An archangel can shine. Uh, Even Satan was called an angel of light. But the cloud, the cloud is unique to Jesus. Um, because a cloud is what um, some call a theophany. Um, if you've been listening to the Bible recap, uh, the woman who does that keeps talking about theophanies all the time. Theophany there, theophany there. This is what is called a theophany. It's, in other words, it is a visible manifestation of God's glory. And it says that this, in cloud, uh, this cloud overshadowed them, but I think a better word would be enveloped. They're both good words. I like enveloped. It like came around him. And the two times that Yahweh enters the Holy of Holies, the first time in Exodus when they build the tabernacle, and if you're doing the Bible recap, that just happened. In Exodus 40, 35, when they complete the tabernacle, they put the ark in the Holy of Holies, and it says the cloud of God enveloped the tabernacle with glory. So the tabernacle is just enveloped, surrounded with glory. Think about other things that are enveloped. That's what's going on with the tabernacle. And then in 1 Kings 8.10, when they finish the temple, when Solomon builds the temple, it says the cloud enveloped the temple. Same word, overshadowed, enveloped all three times. And so what I'm saying is the cloud means that this is actually not just an angel or an archangel. This is actually a divine figure. That Peter, James, and John are actually beholding a divine figure. And so when Peter says, we'll build three tents for you, you know, there's... There's Elijah there, Moses is there, Jesus is there. Uh, It says he did not know what he was saying because they're not equal. You know, Elijah was great. Moses was great, greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But Jesus is on a different level, completely different level. And that's why you have a cloud here. It says in Exodus 24, 15, when Moses went up Mount Sinai, a cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on it. This is sometimes called the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud. Apparently it was in the Holy of Holies all the time, this I would love to see a picture of it. I would love to know what it was like. I would love to have a video recording of the cloud. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a mountain and a cloud has come through, but I was on this big mountain in Scotland uh, that had a lot of clouds because where it was located in the Scottish Highlands, all these lochs were nearby. Uh, Loch Lomond, um, Loch Linney were right near it. It's called Bidian Nambian. It's a very famous mountain in Scotland. Beautiful, majestic, uh, kind of uh, an awesome, numinous mountain, I would say. Dark green and black rock. And this cloud, I was up there and this cloud just came into me because I was at the same height as a cloud. And suddenly, if you've had this happen, it was very thick and dark. The sun was shining, but then it was gone. Completely gone. It was very, very misty and cool. All light was blocked out. And I was just thinking as I read this passage this week, can you imagine glory? Instead of water molecules, imagine glory enveloping you that way. Peter, James, and John are now enveloped in a cloud of thick glory. It was a thick cloud. It was a dark cloud. And it's like there's, there's mist on your skin, but it's not mist. It's, it's glory. It's particles of glory. And that is what they are experiencing when they're seeing Jesus now. And not only that, but a voice comes from the cloud. So the visual, the tactile is not even enough. A voice comes from the cloud. And it doesn't say the voice came from above the cloud or even through the cloud. But it says it came out of the cloud. And so I think of like every droplet as a surround sound speaker. And all this noise is just coming from this cloud that has enveloped them. And it's just booming out. And what it booms out is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop doubting him. Don't rebuke him anymore. This is the beloved son. He is exalted. And I think about Jesus hearing that. And not only were Peter, James, and John struck by it, but Jesus was struck by it. Not that he didn't know who he was, but I'm sure at times he was discouraged. He was doubted by so many people. I'm sure at times he was wondering, he was doubting what's going on here. And then all of a sudden, this is my beloved son comes from the cloud. Stop doubting him. Listen to the one I love. Like this, this thundering storm of approval from the father. I can't think of a better way that you could exalt someone. The father has this created this whole scenario in which he's going to exalt his son. This is my beloved son. I was thinking about being back in high school. A lot of you have told me you've had really bad experiences in middle school and high school, being bullied or just people making fun of you, being mocked, whatever it is, maybe really embarrassed on, the, on a basketball court or football field or wherever it was in high school or middle school. For me, it was Mount Tabor High School. Still don't like Mount Tabor High School. Um, 1986, sophomore, really near English class, just got out of English class. I've told this story. I was uh, opening my locker. Some big football player intentionally came up and knocked me over. I had uh, a bottled Coke. I have no idea I had a bottled Coke, but the bottle hit the ground, smashed. I was picking up everything on the ground, kind of, you know, scrambling around. Everybody's laughing around me. And I imagine my dad, like six foot seven, star basketball player Davidson, Walking in there and saying, you're messing with my son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And and you don't have any idea who this is that you're dealing with. You know, that's the kind of thing that was going on with Christ. And I think I would have felt so exalted and, and lifted up. It would have been exhilarating to be so affirmed in a time when Jesus was certainly feeling very humiliated and very degraded. Um, some of you are teachers. Uh, I, was a high, I was a middle school I was teaching middle school one time, and of course the kids were not listening to me. Uh, They were laughing at me. And I thought about my clothes lighting up. (laughs) 
right up there in front of the, the kids and a, like God's voice from a cloud, listen to him. You know, this is your teacher. That would have helped. That would have helped a lot. That's the, uh, that's the first point, the steep exaltation of the son of God, which again, in Christ, in union with Christ, we experience too, that God would also say to you, this is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son. It's, it's, as, it's as much affirmation as you can possibly get. So that's the first point. The second point is the degradation. You know, as high as he is exalted, and this is the mystery of the gospel, that the one who is so exalted is actually the one who goes so low to, to suffer. He stoops so low to, to suffer. And that's what distinguishes, I think, Christianity from any other religion, probably more than anything. There's a lot of other things, you know, grace versus other religions are more about performance. You know, we say all that this is what distinguishes Christianity from other religions. I think this is the most... Who has ever even conceived of a God as glorious as this that has, be, has become so degraded as to go to a cross and be humiliated and stripped naked and mocked and tortured? I mean, that's crazy. And that's what, that's what we're looking at here in the Gospel of Mark, that as, as high as he is exalted, so deeply does he become degraded and humiliated and treated with contempt. Verse 12, the Son of Man, the paradox is right there in one Short phrase, the son of man, the exalted conqueror of empires must suffer many things and take on what Jesus himself called the slave of all. I am the slave of all. That's the second point, the, um, the degradation. So look at verse 13. Um, Jesus says, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. Now he's talking about his cousin, John. That's, that's Elijah um, in, in Jesus' words here. And what he's saying is they did to John whatever they pleased. They being the empire. They being Herod. The King Herod. Herod the Great. Jesus said that John was the greatest born among women. Uh, this, is John, this is Jesus' cousin. John, the, the greatest human being ever born. They did to him whatever they pleased. That's the degradation um, what did they do to John? If you know the story of John, it's horrific. Um, they, they, they cut off his head and they served it on a platter to the king. I mean, that's, that talk about humiliation. Um, the greatest ever is treated like that. And why do they do that to him? Because he stood against the empire. He just stood firmly uh, against Herod marrying his, uh, his brother's ex-wife. And Herod's like, you're not going to tell me what to do with my sex. You're not going to tell me what to do with my life. And John's like, no, you, you can't treat women like objects. There, there is, you know, the, the striptease of Salome is not God's intention for sexuality. And so John says no to Herod. And Herod's like, okay, off with his head. Put it on a platter in a, in a big banquet and totally humiliate this guy. That's, that's the cousin of John. And if that's what's happening to John then it's going to happen to anyone who follows Christ. Look at uh, verse 4. They were talking with Jesus. That's Elijah and Moses. Suddenly after the transfiguration, there they all are. Elijah, Moses, Jesus. Two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus. And Elijah's like, I imagine him saying, you know, it was rough for me too. Um, I told Ahab, King Ahab, you can't take this poor man's land. And he tried to kill me. And then I think about Moses saying, yeah, Pharaoh tried to kill me too. I called him out on slavery and genocide and racial superiority. And even my people tried to kill me. And then Jesus is like, you have no idea what they're going to do to me. And the three prophets are talking to say that 
if you're a prophet, if you expose things, and we're all prophets, you know, we're all described as prophets, priests, and kings. And if you expose things and say things that people don't like, you're going to be treated with contempt. That's first thir- verse 12. And this is really hard. Um, this is, if you're a Christian, you know, Oliver. Oliver has now signed up for being treated with contempt. Sad, uh, as sad as that is, as difficult as that is, uh, Christians have had the, um, like the moral power in, in the culture for, for a long, long time. That's changing. Um, that's changing, and somewhat, in some ways, rightly so, because being treated with contempt is actually the way that Christ conceived of as his people living. In other words, that the culture will see you as morally despicable. And, you know, imagine on social media just being treated as someone who is... Uh, who was completely out, like out of it, out of touch with reality. Um, someone who, has, who, is not, um, who is not with the times, who's not, who's not with it, um, who is out of touch with the way things are. I, was, I had a very heated conversation with my brother uh, a year ago about sexuality. And, uh, you know, I knew that we didn't agree. But he, 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 for whatever reason, he asked me, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, and I said, well, I... I I believe the same thing I did 10 years ago when we talked about this. I still believe in what Jesus said about sexuality. I believe God has a design and a moral vision for sexuality. And he got so angry with me. And uh, I mean, he loves me and I love him. And it was painful for him to, to say this, but he said, you know, get with the times. Like, no one believes that crap anymore. And to be treated with contempt in that way was really, really hard because I admire him. I respect him. He's a good man. And... That's what Jesus is saying to be a Christian uh, in the empire. You should expect this stuff. Don't run from these things. People are not going to like you because you're a Christian. Uh, the best movie I saw during COVID uh, was A Hidden Life. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, it's called A Hidden Life. Very hard movie to watch um, because it's by this director named Terrence Malick. Very difficult to watch. But I highly recommend it. It's about a man named Franz Jägerstatter, who was real, real guy. He was a simple farmer from Austria. And he was declared a martyr and beatified by the Catholic Church in 2007. Why was he beatified? Because he simply said no to the empire. Uh, When Hitler came calling and said, you've got to fight in my army, you've got to take an oath to Hitler, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't believe what Hitler's doing is right. And pretty soon all the villagers were spitting on him. They were um, throwing things at his children. Um, The Nazis threw him in prison. They mocked him. They kicked him. They jeered at him. They said, your life is meaningless. Why are you doing these things? Just sign this paper and it'll all be over. He wouldn't do it. And you see him, my favorite scenes are when he's in prison. And he's giving thanks to God for this new level of freedom that he's feeling. uh, This new level of glory that he's feeling. For being free from himself. For being okay with being jeered at and degraded. And he, uh, he's able to love his persecutors. He even is able to give meals to other prisoners. And he feels a, a new power and a new glory. And the, the, the title of the movie comes from Colossians 3.2. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died and your... And if you're a believer, if you put your trust in Christ, if you're united with Christ... Uh, you have this strange glory. 
What Bonhoeffer called a strange glory that Franz Jägerstadter had, it comes in, in degradation, it comes in suffering. There's no other way to get it besides going there. And if you try to avoid that, you're going to avoid the glory. Because a human being radiating with self-giving love, suffering love, is glorious. And there is no other kind of glory like that glory. There's no way to counterfeit that. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That is on offer for you, saints of God, is that level of glory. But you've got to be willing to go where Jesus went. Because his greatest exaltation came in his deepest degradation when he was most contemptible. Many scholars say the greatest prayer in the Bible is John 17, where Jesus is talking to his father right before he goes to the cross. The whole chapter 17 is this beautiful prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. And in John 17, 5, Jesus says, Now, Father, bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. He's saying, at this time, I am asking you to bring me into glory. Show people my glory. And then what happens next? You know, does does the father seat him on a golden throne and say, all of you need to worship my son? No, he doesn't do that. He uh, he hangs him on a cross. He he puts a crown of thorns on his head. And and, and that is the answer to the prayer of Christ. Remember, we love these rascals.